Well, if you could turn in your Bibles back to Ephesians 3 and Paul's prayer that we read, and we'll consider really the whole prayer together this morning. But perhaps particularly Paul's prayer to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is perhaps the most wonderful summary of the gospel of the grace of our triune God that we possess. The grand theme of Ephesians is the wondrous work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in saving his people in Christ by grace alone. And we see that astonishing salvation outlined from the very first chapter of Ephesians, just to take chapter 1, verse 7. Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's the note that opens Ephesians, and it's the note that flows all the way through it. Just think of some of the familiar verses that Paul has given us before we get to the midpoint of chapter 3. Salvation brings life from the dead. God being rich in mercy, because of the great love wherewith he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. For Paul's great announcement that salvation is by grace alone, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Up to this point, Paul, as he tells us in Ephesians 3.8, has been unfolding the unsearchable riches of Christ. But what's one of the great things about the Apostle Paul? It is that he never simply expounds theology, however exalted that theology is. He always connects doctrine to the lives of those he is writing or preaching to. And in the opening chapters of Ephesians, he connects his doctrine to practice by naturally moving to prayer for the Ephesian believers. He's already done this in chapter 1, praying that the Ephesians might know the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that they might know what is the hope to which they were called, the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. There's no disconnect between Paul's belief and his practice, between his head and his heart. His theology derives him to his knees in prayer. And again, this is what happens here in chapter 3. Paul just naturally, seamlessly moves to praying for this congregation. And we'll study together Paul's prayer this morning. And we'll see three things that Paul thought it was vital to pray for the Ephesians. And three things, therefore, which are vital for us to be praying for ourselves and for one another. The first thing Paul prays for 
is spiritual power, verses 14 through the first half of 17. The second thing Paul prays for is to know Christ's love, the second half of verse 17 through to 19. And the third thing Paul prays for is that all the glory would go to God. And so we'll see three things from the prayer. Praying for spiritual power, praying to know the love of Christ, and praying ultimately for the glory of God. So first then, let's look at verses 14 to 17a, a prayer for spiritual power. Now Paul, as he's writing to the Ephesians, is suffering for the sake of the gospel. In verse 13, he has just asked the Ephesians not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you. And these sufferings that Paul is going through are his imprisonment. In verse 20 of chapter 6, Paul calls himself an ambassador in chains. And he's obviously concerned that the Ephesians are going to see some disconnect between the glorious truths of God's sovereignty that Paul has been outlining and Paul's own present condition, languishing in prison. And that same concern that prompts Paul's prayer here is surely relevant for us. For example... If our God is sovereign, why is the church in the condition that it is? Why are we failing to have such an impact on society if our God reigns and is sovereign? Paul's prayer here speaks surely into a situation we are familiar with just as much as the Ephesians. And Paul's desire for us then, as much as for the church in Ephesus, is that we would realize that our outward circumstances are no indication that God's power or his love toward us has failed or that our faith is in vain. Well, if that's the concern that Paul has in his mind that the Ephesians would lose heart because of outward circumstances how does he pray for them well the first thing verse 14 is that Paul prays to his heavenly father in a state of submission for the Ephesians Paul tells us that he bows his knees he he bows down he visibly submits to the great God he is praying to But his God isn't some austere stranger. He doesn't bow before his judge. He bows before the Father. And that's a great reminder that prayer is a family conversation with all the joy and all the privileges that that brings. But not only does Paul come before his Father, He comes before the father of all the Ephesian believers as well. That's what he tells us in verse 15. Perhaps best translated as the father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul encourages himself and encourages the Ephesians by reminding them all 
that they are one family in Christ, able to pray to their Father in heaven. And that's a great encouragement for anyone who is struggling or weighed down with doubts, that when we come to our God in prayer, we come to our Father, and that means we come to a God who is for us. And when we pray for one another, we are praying for our brothers and sisters, those we are united to, and we are bringing our brothers and sisters to our common Father in heaven. That's Paul's great encouragement as he begins his prayer. Paul then, verse 16, finally moves to a petition, a request. And that petition is that the Ephesians would have power, that they would be strengthened with power. Paul's earlier prayer in chapter 1 had a, had a similar petition. He prayed that the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. And so this idea of, in the midst of discouragement, praying for power is obviously an important prayer to be making. But what does Paul mean by power? A famous philosopher has rightly said, speaking of this world, I put for the general inclination of all mankind a perpetual and restless desire for power after power. And is that what Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know? That they would grow in power so that they could become dominant and overthrow those who are persecuting Paul and keeping him in prison? Well, as we look in more detail at what Paul is praying for. Of course, he's not praying for this outward power and dominance over the world, but an inward power, verse 16, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being. But what exactly does this mean? If Paul isn't praying for outward power, what is this power in the inner being that he's Asking God to give the Ephesians. Well, the key to unlocking what Paul is really praying for is in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says there, so we do not lose heart. That's the same context as Ephesians 3, this concern over losing heart. Paul says we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. The things that are seen are transient, the things that are unseen are eternal. And what Paul is saying there in in 2 Corinthians is, we aren't to lose heart over what is going on externally with our outward bodies, our outward self. The kind of strength we want isn't in relation to that. The kind of strength we look for is inward, spiritual strength, because that is what what matters. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. And for Paul himself, his outward body, his outward strength would be worn away by years of suffering and persecution. But his inward man, 
was being strengthened day by day to be made ready for an eternal weight of glory. And that is the power he wants the Ephesians to know. Not worldly dominance. Not that restless desire for power that the philosophers speak of. He is praying that they would have an inner spiritual strengthening of their hearts. But in the midst of discouragement, how do we know that inner spiritual renewal and strengthening where the inward man is made ready for that eternal weight of glory? Well, Paul tells us it's by the great work of the Trinity. We know this inner power, verse 16, through his spirit. We know it through, verse 17, Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. And that is all to the end, verse 15. That we would be given the glorious riches of the Father. If we want to be strengthened in our inner man, embed our lives in the doctrine of the Trinity. It is the most practical doctrine in the world. But hasn't Paul got something wrong here? He's praying that Christ might dwell in the Ephesians. He's praying that the Ephesians would know the work of the Spirit. Hasn't he told them again and again that they are already in Christ, that they already have the Spirit? Why is he praying that they would have these things and know the work of the Son and the Spirit when they already have that work? Because the Ephesians and because we always need to know more of what we already have. Paul is desiring that the Ephesians would experience more of Christ, more of the Spirit, because it is in that way that they would increase in spiritual power. And the image has been used, and it's a good one, of a house that you buy. When you buy a house, especially an older house, the day you move in, the house is yours. You have the keys You live in it. But the house still bears the marks of its previous owner. They've chosen the paint, the wallpaper. There'll be parts of the house that aren't in great condition. The kitchen might need replaced. The bathrooms might need redone and so on. But over the years, as you address these things, the house becomes more and more yours. It has more and more your stamp on it. And that's the kind of strengthening and power through more of the work of Christ and more of the work of the Spirit that Paul is praying for. Yes, the Ephesians, and I trust we know Christ and have his Spirit, but we need more so that we might more and more resemble our Savior and have his power and his strength working in us. But perhaps you might be here thinking that knowing this sort of power, this inward renovation and work of the Spirit is just beyond you. The struggles of sin have gone on for too long. 
Or to go back to the earlier image, you've owned the house for 20 years and it just looks pretty much like it does when you bought it. Is there any hope for me to know this kind of power that Paul is praying for? Well, yes, yes, there is. Because whatever our struggles are, whatever our failings, whatever our lack today of knowing this power, the source of this transformatory, renovative power is limitless. Look at the flow of verses 14 to 16. I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with his power. Where does the power to be inwardly strengthened and renewed come from? The infinite glory of the strength of the Father. And so whatever our struggles, we cannot doubt the power that Paul is praying to. My God will supply every need of yours according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus, is what Paul told the Philippians. And so the the power that Paul prays for here is able, whatever our struggles, to come into our lives, to renovate us because it is the infinite power of the infinite God. However weak we feel, All we have to do this morning is stretch out the empty hand of faith and pray that that power would transform us, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. So Paul prays first that these Ephesians would know the power of the triune God in such a way as to strengthen and transform and renovate their spiritual lives. But Paul goes on to pray more that they would know the love of Christ, verse 17b through 19, that you, he prays, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Now, in a sense, Paul continues to pray that the Ephesians would have power. He mentions strength again in verse 18. But he's not praying now for the power, the strength to do something. He's praying that they would know the strength simply to be still and drink in the wonders of the love of Christ for them. And these two prayers form a wonderful, virtuous circle. If we have the strength to stand still and drink in the love of Christ, that will give us the strength to renovate our inner man. And as our inner man is renovated, it will give us the strength to drink in more of the love of Christ. These two prayers belong together. But as Paul prays that the Ephesians would know the love of Christ, he assumes something. Verse 17b, he says that they are already rooted and grounded in love. These are the people already loved by God and already showing that love to others. The foundation of God's love has been laid in their lives. The roots are there. But again, Paul wants more. He wants better for the Ephesians. He wants them not just to have this foundational understanding and experience of the love of Christ, but a larger, more complete 
knowledge of it. Paul is praying the Ephesians would move on from the foundation to grasp more of Christ's love. But it's important to note that we can't grasp more of the love of Christ on our own. What does Paul pray? Verse 18, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. It's only in the company of God's people with all the saints that our knowledge of Christ's love will deepen. We can't ignore the corporate dimension of Christ's love. It is the church he loved and gave himself for. But moving on, Paul prays that the Ephesians would have strength with all the saints to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And what a prayer that is, and what a love the love of Christ is. One commentator said, the love of Christ is broad enough to embrace the world, long enough to last for eternity, high enough to lift us to heaven, and deep enough to reach the most degraded of sinners. What can we say to this love? We haven't earned the love of Christ We've been at some wonderful weddings this summer, celebrating the love of a a man and a woman. But they've been attracted to one another. They've been drawn to each other by something wonderful they see in one another. But this love of Christ isn't like that. He didn't see something to draw himself to us. God showed his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This love of Christ, Paul prays, about here isn't earned, it's freely given. But while the love of Christ is freely given to us, it is, of course, very costly for our Savior. Christ's love is shown in his sacrifice of himself, Ephesians 5. Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 1 John 4, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ, out of his love for us, became what he hated. He who knew no sin was made sin. He who was rich became poor, and all because He loved us. He endured the wrath of the Father because he loved his people. The love Paul wants us to know is the love that brought Jesus Christ to cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this love Paul is praying about, so costly for Christ, is ours forever because Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Truly, 
This love of Jesus Christ that Paul refers to passes all understanding. The love that plunged Jesus Christ into the depths of hell and raises up us with absolute certainty to heaven for all eternity is a love that we can scarcely begin to begin to comprehend. But Paul still prays, verse 19, that we would know it. That's what he prays for. And given the intellectual inability that we have to truly fathom the love of Christ for us, what Paul is really praying for is that we would experience that love in our hearts. That we would experience Romans 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's not being all mystical. It isn't about ignoring the importance of understanding and knowledge. But it's saying that Paul's prayer is more than a head knowledge. He wants us to have heart knowledge, deepening heart knowledge of the love of Christ. And why is Paul so concerned that the Ephesians would know this love of Christ in their hearts? Why is he praying that they would comprehend more of the love of Christ than anything else for them? Why is this the greatest prayer he can make for this church struggling as they are? Shouldn't his prayer be more practical? Shouldn't he be praying directly for their encouragement and their perseverance? Well... He's praying that this church would know more of the love of Jesus Christ in their hearts because there is no more practical prayer he could make for them. Verse 19, he goes on, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Knowing Christ's love, Paul says, of necessity leads to us being filled with the fullness of God. And that's really a a Pauline phrase for spiritual maturity. Paul is the same phrase in Ephesians 4.13, talking of us coming to mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so Paul in his prayer is saying here that embedding our lives in the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is the great key to spiritual progress, to spiritual maturity. Basking in the love of Jesus Christ for us is the great thing that brings us on in our Christian life. And the rest of the scripture shows this. If we know the love of Christ, we inevitably love others. John thirteen thirty four. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. If we truly know the love of Christ, we become obedient to our God. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. If we know the love of Christ, we can face the ups and the downs that there are in life. Romans 8:28. All things work together for good. If we love the Lord Jesus Christ, It will lead us to a life of blessedness in our homes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for us. If we know the love of Christ, it will bring church unity. 
put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If we know the love of Christ, it will lead us to sacrifice ourselves for others. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. Knowing this love of Christ, as Paul prays for Exploring its length, its breadth, its depth, and its height will transform our lives. It will fill us with all the fullness of God. And surely that is something we can unite in praying for ourselves and for one another. So a prayer for spiritual power. A prayer to know the love of Christ. And very briefly, a prayer for the glory of God, verses 20 to 21. Paul has been asking great things for the Ephesians, that they would know the powerful working of the Spirit, that they would know the love of Christ, that they would experience the riches of God's glory at work, leading them on to be filled with all the fullness of God, And now as he closes his prayer, Paul moves to a doxology, a final word of praise. And he begins, verse 20, with God's power. Can God do what Paul has asked? Can God work in these ways in the lives of those who are in the church in Ephesus? Well, yes, he can. And more than this large, though Paul's requests were, God can do far more abundantly above what we ask or think. And that's a staggering statement, but it should be, of course, no surprise to us. If God is God, is any prayer request too hard for him? But one commentator has a wonderful thought on this verse. He says this, God is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, not just because he is powerful, but also because he is generous. And so we praise our God, not simply for his power, but for his generous heart of love toward us, which gives us the assurance that God's power will be exercised toward us, in ways that are greater than we can think. But the ultimate purpose of Paul's prayer isn't for power to dwell in us. It isn't even for us to know more of the love of Christ. It is simply, verse 21, for God to be glorified. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So why did Paul ask for these great things in prayer? Simply for the sake of the things that would be changed as a result. Better marriages, more church unity, greater humility, greater obedience to the word of God. Well, no, Paul never prayed simply for these things. He prayed to the great end that God would have all the glory. That God would be honored. And may it be that in all our hopes and in all our prayers, the goal we have isn't something simply even as wonderful as knowing the love of Christ, 
but may our prayers be with the hope, the goal, the aim, that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would have all the glory. Amen.